0: Hi, I'm Max Weisbrod, founder of Baton. This is Fractally Speaking. Today, I'm joined by Neil Hartzell, the founder and leader at Mile One Marketing. Neil, can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all do?
1: Yes, so we are a, uh, a boutique shop. Actually, it's a solopreneur shop, so it's myself. And we focus on early stage and startup cybersecurity and networking companies, mostly cybersecurity these days. By virtue of being started up to early stage, it is in that, you know, zero to $20 million type space. And I've had clients that run the gamut in that in that band.
0: So that that's a, a big gamut. So for the people at that very early stage who are like pre-product market fit, like that sub one, $1 million range, what problems are they seeing that, you know, drives them to start having a conversation with you? And which conversations do you take? Well, so
1: if it's super early stage and you defined it well, if they don't have product market fit, it's usually about getting enough content out to a targeted audience so that they can start engaging with targeted prospects to try to determine how close or far they are for a product market fit. And so whether you're already achieving some level of ARR or unit sales or whether you had zero, there's still got to be some early marketing fundamentals that you're going to have to approach and so you know that's going to be what is your market position what is the problem that you solve who do you solve that for what is the value of your solving that how do you do that differently and better than others in that space these are the things that your target buyers are going to want to know Oftentimes companies, particularly early stage, are maybe even too close to their technology or their, their product because they've worked hard to build their baby. And they may have some blind spots in how to run those questions to ground or how to build that story so that they can tell that externally to their target audience. And that always comes down to fundamentals. You know, what's the competitive landscape? Who's the target buyer? What's their persona? What are their pain points? What's important to them? How do you appeal to that? And so once you can understand that position, which is how you're different and better, then it pretty quickly turns into what message will tell your story. And the simplest expression of that is some form of a messaging framework. And I will always contend that once you really know your position and your messaging framework, As best as you can, in in the case you mentioned, you don't have product market fit yet, there's still wild cards in there. But the moment you know those two things, then you're in a position to do your digital marketing work, which is website, content, demand generation, social media, um, outbound activity. But if you try to do those things with uncertainty around your position, your message, you're probably going to waste a lot of time, energy, and money. So I try to help people get these things right. That's why I call it mile one marketing. There's no point in running a race if you don't get that first mile right. And that's where I like to focus is on those three things position, message, and digital marketing, which I always say quickly turns into content marketing and content distribution.
0: So that early, that early, how are there cases where they come to you and they don't know who their target buyer is and they don't know like, you know, what that buying decision even looks like.
1: You know, it's always two sides of a the coin. There's no startup who doesn't think they don't understand their targeted buyer, but at times they may not understand it well enough. So, an example would be you know, you want, in my case, you know, you want to target cyber mid sized FinServe organizations who have a particular security problem that they want solved. Great. Almost assuredly, you're gonna to have to appeal to three personas, the CISO, the person who is in charge of running the security operations or actually on the ground game of dealing with threats and, and resolving them. And of course, the whoever's got the purse strings. The strings. And that could be the CFO or CEO slash CFO, depending on the size of the organization. You're gonna to have to deal with these three personas. But the, the question is, do you really have those dialed in well enough? Because it's pretty broad to say even, oh, we're targeting midsize FinServe companies who have this security problem. That's still a fairly broad ICP. You need to get a little bit more specific. You know, they, they have a security stack that looks like this. They have a budget that looks like that. They have a security staff that has this level of expertise. So there are other questions that you really need to delve into to get your persona nailed. And the moment you do, you can focus your marketing efforts really well. If you don't do that, you're going to spray and pray. You're going to spend a lot of money broadly throwing fishing nets, and you're going to catch a lot of the wrong fish, and they're not going to yield into leads and ultimately buying customers. So again, no startup would ever say, hey, we've got a great product. We, We don't know who our customer is. But what I typically see is they maybe don't have a sharp enough understanding of who the real buyer is, and that can be problematic for your digital marketing cost and, and sort of uh, productivity.
0: So for these leaders, for these founders, what pain points are they facing and what are they seeing from their perspective that drives them to, to have that first conversation with you? there will be different start
1: points. Sometimes it's a very young organization and they don't have a marketing department. They almost always will have a marketing resource. And typically, if it's super early stage, it's someone who is a very classic marketing communications type person. They have the ability to produce collateral and do website work and write some blogs but they may be missing sort of marketing leadership that helps them think about the function holistically. There, there's no part of marketing that doesn't seep into every other part of the business. So they may need help across the board of positioning, messaging, competitive analysis, pricing, product packaging, you know, how, demand generation, the systems side your marketing tech stack. Any of that set or all of that set could need attention. So if they don't have anyone who can do that, they're almost certainly in some pain. The second scenario would be they had someone and that person's no longer in the role for whatever reason, and they're not ready to go full-time, they're looking for some part-time help, and then we get into the discussion of do you need a fractional CMO or do you need an interim CMO, and those are slightly different. Sometimes they have a marketing lead and they've got a marketing team, but they've got some gaps in some functional areas and they need someone who has worn different hats to come in and fill a particular role. That could be a a project or a function until they hire someone. So those are the three doorways that that I typically
0: hear about. And for these organizations, you know, especially with uh, budgets tightening Sales cycles lengthening, like all of these things happening, resources are just not as as available as they once were. How are companies thinking about the decision to go with a fractional uh, marketing uh, leader versus you know a full time marketing leader in these early stages? That's a great question. So there's there's sort of
1: two parts of that: early stage and economy. So you know. What I'm seeing right now is, yes, because of the current economy here in the first half of 2023, everyone is belt tightening and there is churn. And sometimes there's a real need for, you know, a fair amount of marketing, but they can't afford a full-time, team, a full-time uh, leader or, you know, team plug. And so a fractional makes sense. And fractional could be, hey, we need uh, someone who can operate in this capacity for, you know, one day a week, 20% or three days a week, or we want someone to take care of this set of projects in a 90-day span. So there's different kinds of commercial models that, that will get filled. The budgetary side really is driven by we need a CMO, but we can't afford a full-time one. So we want a fractional. That's a scenario. Another scenario is we need a CMO. We're looking for a full-time person. We think it's going to take a while, but we'd have pain right now. So we want someone who could come in and take care of some things while we're in that search. And then usually that will also fold into when they find that person, you know, a fractional has already made some headway on any number of projects. So there's a handoff period. And uh, I could take that form. Sometimes organizations will say, we need a CMO. We're not going to hire one right now. So we're looking for somebody who can wear a lot of hats for an indeterminate amount of time. Although I personally don't like to take on work that's anything less than 90 days, not because I won't. I just think that if you've got a problem, it probably takes more than a couple of weeks to to resolve it. So I typically look for steps that are three to six months. But there's projects of all sizes, but that's kind of the budget side of things. Now the economy side of things, well, look, there's a lot of marketing headcount churn right now. So there's a lot of people on the sidelines. There's no shortage, I think, of marketing talent that's available because there's been so much displacement. Whether or not everybody is really qualified to operate as a uh, fractional CMO is another discussion. Uh, It's it's not as mature of a space as, for example, FRAC CFO, which has been around for a while. And since there have been so many marketing people displaced of late, a lot of people have hung shingles that say fractional CMO, and that isn't necessarily the skill set they have. So,
0: If you're a founder out there and you're trying to you know, fill in this space with a fractional leader, and you're worried about, you know, will this person actually be able to solve my problems? I, you, you know that if you hire the wrong executive, that's three, six months down the drain at least before you're able to start correcting the problem. What questions should they be asking of, of fractional leaders or, you know, prospective fractional leaders before they enter engagement?
1: Well, I think the number one thing is really sharp clarity around what is the problem you're trying to solve? And by the way, clients that I work with, oftentimes they think their problem is X and it turns out that it's something slightly different, maybe upstream of that problem. But real clarity on what is the problem you want to solve? What does the outcome look like? How would you measure success? What are the back end metrics that, that you want to see? The moment they can state these two things clearly, it's pretty easy for people like me to come in and say, okay, I understand your problem. Here is how I would go about solving that. Here's how long it will take. And here is what the output will look like. Now, that's either a a good fit or not. Now, beyond that, it comes down to, great, well what evidence is there that that you've done this before and you can do this for me? And that's different for consultants than it is for, uh, you know, public companies, because oftentimes I can't disclose what I did for my last customer. I'm bound by, you know, contractual constraints, but I can describe in gory detail. This is how you go about fixing your website. This is how you go about fixing your demand generation process. This is how you go about fixing the content problem you have or the funnel problem that you have, or, or the fact that you're not getting leads and looking at your metrics, it appears to be, this is the problem area. So I will often tell them, and I do this for free, this is what I think your problem is, and here's how I'd go about and solve that. They, they don't need to, at least for my clients, I don't charge for that. I, I pretty much do that as part of a proposal. During that process, I'm either able to convince them that I have enough expertise and enough experience or not.
0: And uh, so far, I've been fortunate on that front. So it sounds like a lot of the discovery practice is, is happening before you even have a, a uh, foot on the ground, really, and, and you've entered the trenches, right? It is. But I think
1: from experience, it's maybe a poor analogy. But if you have an ailment and you go to a doctor, the doctor knows how to, you know, if not pinpoint, zone in on the problem area pretty quickly. There's a set of questions that he or she knows to ask. And it's the same thing with marketing consultants. I I mostly sell to CEOs. That's usually who uh, comes calling and who I have to sign a proposal with. Obviously, there's other executive staff members involved. But it really comes down to, do you know the right questions to ask to tease out of the client what their problem is, or at least where the problem areas appear to be? And I guess that gets into the process that I use to a degree. And I've got a process, which is let's, let's assess the problem. And I'm going to look like a doctor. I'm going to look at a certain set of indicators. I'm going to look at your, your sales pipe, your marketing funnel, your content, your site. I'm going to ask to have your top salesperson give me their solution pitch. So I can understand what story you're telling. I'm going to use all that data and what you tell me your problem is and I'm going to figure out pretty quickly okay you think your problem is in you know lead gen but your problem is actually over here or whatever it may be and then I'll tell them and this is what we this is what I would do to go about you know, resolving that but the discovery process and every one of them has been unique for me but it really, I think comes from the experience of having done it a lot. And that's not a statement of arrogance. I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, so I, I already know some trap doors and, uh, that's part of the, 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 the experience too. It's, it's genuine. It's not born of arrogance. It's born of school of the hard knocks. So
0: Usually like w- when I come into early stage organizations to work on product problems, It's a very similar thing. Usually it's after a project went wildly outside of the original scope and ended up solving zero problems while wasting massive amounts of engineering resources. And nobody stopped to say, what can we get rid of? Yeah. So let's shift gears and talk more about what it's like, you know, being a fractional executive and running a fractional practice. So... When did you found Mile One Marketing, and what what drove you to make that decision to shift into you know this uh, consultancy fractional practice?
1: I started Mile One Marketing in April of 2022. I came off a full time position where I'd been CMO for about a 25 million dollar company for three years. I had consulted with them for two years prior. So Mile One Marketing, I've run it several times. It's really the this is the third time I've in my career that I've hung a consulting shingle, and so in each case, it, it and just you know my sort of career background. I, I knew out of college I would go to work for a large company, move to a mid-sized, small size startup, and then I'll someday run my own business. It's just what I wanted to do personally. It, I always joke with people, even if that if even if my own business was just a hot dog stand, that, that's okay. But I, I wanted to be the guy that ran the whole thing. So that I, I probably been towards entrepreneurialism in, in that regard, but I had great experiences in larger companies that taught me a ton. The reason I share that is that for the past, uh, you know, 20 years of my career, it's all been in startups and that's a very different game. And I've seen the good, bad and ugly of startups. I've, I've been part of a very successful one. I've been part of some that were, you know, just, didn't go anywhere and a few in between. So I uh, have a a love of the space, but also a, a healthy respect for you're not going to hit oil every time you drill. That's just the way it is. So I've run a consulting practice three times. The thing I love about it is you learn so much working across customers. Uh, I think you, in some ways you learn faster and you certainly learn more broadly than you can if you're in a Specific function inside of one company, and I really enjoy that the the breadth of learning from multiple clients. And So that that's a powerful lever for me. I, I love having an outside voice. I think companies listen to you differently when you're you know uh, you know the old statement is hard to be a prophet in your own hometown. So your clients hear your voice differently than they their own employees, um, that doesn't mean it's better, it's, but it is different. And so I, I enjoy that. It's more of the, the consultative relationship, I think, allows me to be more honest and free than I could be if I have to protect a sacred cow, for example. So that's, that's valuable. Um, and I, I really love that. I, I love doing the soup to nuts thing myself, and th- this a lot of consultants don't like this. I love trying to find business, introducing myself, finding out someone's problem, see if I can address it, putting together a proposal, hopefully winning the proposal, delivering the work, and then getting paid. <laughs> I, I love that whole process. Uh, it's not for everyone because it, there, there are problem sets in each of those domains, but I, I enjoy it. The downside is I, I don't have a steady paycheck every two weeks as you do when you're a full-time employee. There is no paid vacation. Uh, there's unpaid vacation, right? Healthcare expenses are are higher when you're own your own than when you're part of a, a pool model that companies can afford. So financially, it's it's riskier. It can be lumpier. So far, I've been fortunate. I've been able to roll off one client or more and roll on some others relatively smoothly i've been able to do that in times when the the market and the economy are white hot and in times when it's softer so so far i would just count myself fortunate there that could change tomorrow but i view it that if you're an employee most of the time you're you're on contract on a two week basis and Things can change for anyone in a, in a short period of time. Now it's volatile for everyone, so uh, it's not that different. But yeah, you do have to manage. I've got bills like the next person, so
0: cash flow management is very real when you're on your own, right? <laughs> very real. So you've you've uh, run this track a, a couple of times, and one one question I have for you is what was so compelling about that client and that seat that drove you to fold up and you know become an executive inside of that firm in a full-time position. So, that particular company was a, a hardware-based
1: company. That's where they made most of their revenue, but they had a very interesting, compelling and highly regarded open-source software product. I believed there was an opportunity to change the business model and move from sales and revenue being largely hardware, you know, one-time purchase only, and into a software recurring business. And that's why they brought me in as a consultant. Initially, it was to solve some branding problems that they had with their product line. And then it morphed into help us on this journey to change our business model which would change our financials, which would lead to a different set of exit opportunities. And so I'd consulted with them for a few years and I really believed in the direction of shifting them from a hardware-based company to a software ARR company. And I was willing to join because I thought when I looked at the financial attributes of the company and the nature of the software product and the market itself, I thought there was a really good opportunity for them to change the business model and exit with a fairly attractive, you know, exit valuation. So I was willing to stop consulting, pour myself into one of my clients and go do that again full time, as which has all the trappings of a startup. And then along the way, some things changed and the aggression towards that outcome wasn't as great. And I'm an impatient person, that's one of my weaknesses, and I felt that things could have been done in, in a certain way and, and moved faster. I'm not being judgmental, but the the expectations for the outcome changed, and I felt like I wanted to go back out into the open market and broaden my opportunities more. So there, there was a, a change in where the company was trying to go, and I felt like that wasn't a fit for me long-term. And the other thing, and I I didn't have prescience here, but back in April of last year, I I knew I wanted to get closer to artificial intelligence. Now, this predated chat GPT coming out in November. So again, I didn't have a crystal ball, but I was very interested in AI specifically for being able to automate sort of the marketing tool chain and do a lot of things that marketing teams have to do in, in a more orchestrated type automated approach chat GPT came along or generative AI and the world has changed. And I've learned so much more about that than I think I would have had I been inside of a company. And I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm also aware of all the downsides, but I I guess what I, I use that as an example of when you're on your own as a consultant, my experience is you learn five to 10 times faster than you do when you're in a a a job where you're filling a a specific set of job requirements. Part of that is because you're, you're going after new projects. Part of it is you're working with multiple customers. And part of it is necessity is the mother of invention. You have to constantly reinvent yourself to stay competitive. You know, people who can see me are clearly going to recognize I'm not 20. So I have to work a little harder to run with folks that are, you know, a decade or two or three younger than me. I'm not intimidated by that. I actually use LinkedIn to learn from them, but I enjoy that learning process. Um, And and I felt I might've been stymied in some ways if I had just stayed in a fixed role. So if the business dries up, I might regret saying that, but right now I'm a firm believer and I'm happy and and I've learned a ton
0: and I'm grateful for for that opportunity. So So one place where... Fractional executives have a little bit of the pain point is in that demand generation and in you know having those those uh, those conversations with new leads and balancing that against the demands that they have servicing their clients. How do you balance between you know those two you know competing demands on your time? That
1: is a really difficult challenge uh, for me. And I think maybe many consultants, but I can speak for myself. And I, I don't think I'm alone because i talk to other folks who are in the virtual space. But I'll tell you, I think I do it relatively poorly, is the honest answer. And the reason for that, is when you get clients, um, you are busy taking care of the work of your clients. And then what happens is your, the marketing of your business Becomes a victim of the it's the shoe cobbler's daughter. You know, the shoe cobbler doesn't have time to make shoes for his daughter He's too busy making them for the village and so my website suffers My social media post rigor suffers my blog suffers and All I can say is I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm trying to find ways to address that problem differently and it's particularly important if you're a marketing consultant, because you need to be able to do what you preach that your clients should do. And if you can't show that you're doing that, you look a little silly. But, but my excuse is uh, when I take on, and typically I will carry no more than three clients at a time. There, there was one time when I had seven clients and it nearly killed me and I didn't want to build an agency. So I had to make some decisions there. But what I would say if someone wanted to go down this path is at least probably think in terms of if you want to bill yourself out on a weekly basis, maybe bill yourself out 80% of the time and leave at least 20% to work on your business. Of course, you're going to have to manage you know, payments and contracts and proposals and all that. But putting that aside, which is just really the, the maintenance of, of winning and closing business, I believe the right number for me is 20% of my time, let's call that one day a week, needs to be devoted to marketing my own business. There are people that I follow on LinkedIn that I think have this down to a science and they don't do it as near as I can observe on a, they don't spend Friday doing, working on their business, but they probably spend an hour, maybe an hour and a half a day working on telling their story. Sharing useful insights, promoting who they are, who they're trying to reach, and the types of problems they solve. And, you know, I think the vast majority of that gets done through LinkedIn. There are other social platforms, of course. So I'm being gut level honest. I think I know what to do. I really want to do it. I love creating content, even about problems that I've solved that I think are useful for people to just know about. Finding the time and then being disciplined about doing that on a daily or weekly basis.
0: Yeah, I'm still struggling a bit, but I'm aware of the problem. I, I completely know how you feel. You know, like I got in consulting because I w- want to work with the people I want to work with and I want to work on the problems I want to work on. And when I'm in a problem that I want to work on, I'm very passionate about solving that problem and I'm obsessed with that problem. And you know the the you know bottom of Maslow's pyramid, right? Just seems so mundane and and so boring. And you know why why would I want to talk about me when you know there is this problem that exists inside this organization that I could speed up by a week or two just by using that time to have like this additional meeting, ordinary. right? Like. You either love doing the work
1: or you don't and, and i love doing work and so given the chance to you know build a a sales presentation for a client or build one for myself i prefer to do it for them it's just more interesting it's more exciting to me but i, I you know i also think that because of my experiences and my background i have a lot to share And I would be willing to share that freely, Uh, hopefully as a good Samaritan to whatever set of listeners want to pick that up for free from me, you know, call that part of a give back kind of mentality. And so I want to do more of that, but I have to find the time. And I would consider myself a pretty good time manager. I mean, people who know me, I'm I'm a real big, I, I try to quickly drive to, okay, what's actionable from this meeting? What can we go do? that's going to move the needle. So I'm pretty disciplined in that way. When it comes to my own business though, yeah, I still short sheet things. So I'm constantly studying and, and the, the, that's the bad news. The good news is there is so much tooling out there right now, especially with this new generation of AI tools that really can speed and facilitate the process of creating and distributing content, whether it is written, image, video. I mean, there's just a slew of tools. It really is down to your willingness to just bite the bullet and start doing it. Record yourself, push it out there, warts it all, get better at it, figure out how to curate your own content. Do you create a large asset and then create 10 small ones from that? The very same things that I advocate my customers do, because they have shoestring budgets. I, I know I need to. I want to do for myself. I swear I'm going to start. Unfortunately, I've been saying that for a few months.
0: Well, so it's really, really funny that you're saying that. That's what we do, right? Like, is the, There's an old book on this, Content Inc., which is Are you sure? really fantastic. <laughs> really fantastic yep. book. And what we do with with this podcast in particular, right? So there's this forty five minute hour long period that we have together, and and that's where that's where my commitment kind of starts and ends. After that, you know, the uh, transcript gets taken, uh, that gets fed into Chat GPT to come up with a bulleted summary. The bulleted summary gets posted up on LinkedIn. We send a template to everybody so that they're able to, you know, share against that and say, I'm excited about this upcoming podcast that's going to be coming out. Then there are a bunch of these new generative AI powered tools that, Uh, Like you're saying, take video and then they try to figure out what the salient points are inside of that video and chop it up and automatically layer on, you know, a a relatively good cap uh, captions on it. And frankly, you know, who has the time to listen to every niche podcast out there that's 30, 45 minutes? Instead, they're consuming, you know, 30 seconds to three minutes on TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of that, yep. right? If they want more, they could dig deeper for the vulgar asset. Sure, and and then you know you've got someone who's at least interested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, you know, we we run all of that through like uh, a pipeline, including uh, basically you know we've got I, I'm an ops guy, right? Like that's my yep. original background is ops, and I usually help tech-enabled you know uh, service companies, right? So. I've got a person who writes up SOPs on how all of this is supposed to work. They put up scorecards. They then, you know, ship it out to virtual assistants, the virtual assistants, fulfill the work. It gets scored. And, you know, like there's, and and magically in like two, three weeks, everything happens from my perspective. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent believer,
1: you know, before I was a marketer, I was an engineer and, and an industrial engineer. So I, I have a love of process. I have a love of tooling. I have a love of, you know, you know, schedules. I, I, I love creativity and, you know, the tooling is there. There's, there's, that's no excuse. And it's virtually free, certainly not expensive if it's chargeable. What I find, and, and I'm trying to think this through, not only for myself, but with some clients that I know are having the same challenge, oftentimes I think, well, what I have to share is not that interesting, or it's not that compelling, or it's already been done. And the reality is, I think uh, I, people who know me will have heard this before, but I always use the example of the yoga magazine at, at Whole Foods. You know, you go to buy lunch, and there's the yoga magazine right there at the checkout line when you get ready to go out. And I always have this impression about the yoga magazine. It's like, listen, yoga's five thousand years old. There's not a new yoga move. There's nothing new about this form of, you know, exercise and meditative uh, improvements. Actually, there is something new. There's a new person coming into the shopping lot every day. So there's a new consumer of that information. And where that goes is uh, if you have experience in ops or marketing or finance or whatever it may be, someone's looking to learn from that experience. It might be someone who's not as far along as you are. It doesn't matter that there's another expert who may have already told this story. They may not have heard that message from that expert or they may want a second opinion. Or maybe your style or your specific experiences speak to them in a different way. So it really is just go do it. And I know this, and yet I find excuses, like when the NBA championships on, that's a good excuse for me. I'll watch basketball. But uh, you know, but yeah, I do. I do think it's clear in this world. You know, we're, we're all messengers. We all have to tell a story whether it's about ourselves or about a product or someone that we serve or a noble cause on the planet. And if you believe that that's important, then you do have to go tell your story. It's easy to say, I'm not going to do this. The world's already too noisy. Well, people self-select what they want to tune into. And somewhere out there, there's a target audience. If, if you do a good enough job, they they will start following you and commenting and, and that can lead to other things. So
0: yeah, 100% on every single, every single mark. It's, it's, you know, you have to tell a story. I, I, every executive is telling stories anyway. That's their job, right? Is to align people uh, <laughs> behind the story. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Where is the best place for people to find you if they want to get in contact or follow you? My website is mile one, the number
1: one marketing.com. And I'm on LinkedIn as Neil Hartsell, N-E-A-L-H-A-R-T-S-E-L-L. So I'm relatively active, mostly as a consumer more than a poster, but you can find me in either place. And and I am always, you know, looking for interesting people to talk with. You'll learn something no matter whether that converts to business or not. Sometimes there's opportunities to help, even if it's just a a straight up, hey, here's some free advice. And, you know, I love being engaged in the community. I enjoy what I do and plan to keep doing it for a few more years. So
0: amazing. Well, thank you so much, Neil. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening.
1: See you. Thank you, Max. I appreciate you having me.